The rumors are coming out of Rome, ladies and gentlemen, and this is a doozy. Many of you out there in Crusader land are Catholic. And for those that aren't, you still care about what the largest Christian church in the world does these days. And many of you who are Catholic are big fans of the traditional Latin Mass. What is the traditional Latin Mass? It's the Mass that was said for over a thousand years. Bishop Athanasius Schneider, for example, was recently interviewed about the Latin Mass. And he was clarifying the fact that the Latin Mass is the Mass of all time. It's the Mass of the ages. It is the Mass of the saints. It predates the Council of Trent. You know, So it's technically wrong to refer to the Latin Mass as the quote-unquote Trinitine Mass. That was a name given to it at the Council of Trent. Council of Trent was a reaction to Protestantism. So you have Martin Luther and Henry VIII splitting the church across Europe, splintering it into many, many pieces. And the Roman Catholic Church held an ecumenical council, something that they have done at least 20 times in 20 centuries, to respond to the errors of Protestantism. And those errors were deftly dealt with. And many of the great saints in the aftermath of Trent would make their names and their legacies in the shadow of that council. St. Francis de Sales was a famous bishop who, it is said, single-handedly converted 70,000 Protestants back to the one true church. 70,000? By speaking truth in charity. So many others. Cardinal Bellarmine, a genius whose publications were responsible for the conversion of so many. And these men dealt with very serious errors. Calvinism, predestination, faith alone, scripture alone, the humanity only of Christ, and in other words, de-deifying the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So there was a lot going on in the 15th and 16th centuries. I suppose in the 16th century, 17th century. So post-Council of Trent and implementing Trent took a long time to do. Didn't quite get the genie put back in the box. Lots of Protestants never came back. They continued to splinter around the world into the various sects. So many Protestant sects. And so many of those sects are at war with each other. <laughs> right? 
You ever been to a church where they speak in tongues? You shouldn't go because if you're Catholic, you can't. But if you've ever seen it on YouTube where they're speaking in tongues, these Pentecostals, these crazy people, they have little to nothing in common with your Baptists who have even less in common with your quote-unquote high church Anglicans, Episcopalians. But the one thing that they all share in common now is a love for the rainbow flag, I guess. Why are we talking about Trent? I thought we were talking about the Mass. Yes, Bishop Athanasius Schneider says that the Mass predates Trent by 500 years at least, and maybe a lot more than that. So it's not the Trinitine Mass, it's the Mass of all time, the Mass of the ages, the Mass which was believed and prayed by all peoples in all places in all times. Well, until the baby boomers showed up, that is. Until the age of Aquarius. And in the age of Aquarius, the end of the 1960s, the entire world descended into a cultural revolution. And the revolution involved not just the sexual revolution, It was a revolution against authority, against tradition, against the old guard. It was an unshackling of the individual from cultural norms. It was the I get to define who I am and how I want to be. It really was something to behold lasting impacts this revolution had. And as I talked about last week, it has something to do with communism as well, which we won't go there for very long other than to just say that communism takes hold in situations and places and times where the most important person is the individual. You see, there's a false understanding of what communism actually is. There's a false belief that communism is about the community and its collectivism. But no, that's not what it's really about. When Karl Marx wrote the manifesto, he was merely writing the logical conclusion of the Enlightenment principles. The Enlightenment tells us that the most important person in a society is the individual. That society exists to serve the individual. That the individual is the basic building block of society. That the individual has certain inalienable rights. That those rights are accorded to the individual, the rights of man, not the rights of men, not the rights of families, not the rights of communities or parishes or churches or kings, the rights of man. So we heard a couple hundred years about the rights of man, and it concluded, quite logically I would say, with communism, which is that the entire planet exists to serve the individual. Now, they just go about it in a slightly different way than classical liberalism. 
classical liberalism says that we should limit the government so that people can do whatever they want. And then progressivism says, well, no, we should expand the government so that people can do whatever they want in certain ways. And then communism just says, yeah, you're right. We should expand the government to ensure and force people to do what we know they really want to do. So it's all basically the same thing. It's about orienting society around the individual. But the mass is supposed to transcend all of those things. The liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church is not supposed to be affected by a cultural revolution which redefines what it means to be a functioning member of a society. The 1960s brought a revolution which didn't wasn't born then. It didn't spontaneously manifest itself in the late 1960s. The age of Aquarius didn't drop out of the sky with hippies strumming guitars and smoking dope from nowhere. It was a slow burn. It can be traced back. And ultimately, its roots, the roots of individualist philosophy, of scientism, of anti-supernaturalism, of immanentism and all the other isms, materialism, the root cause of it is Protestantism. It was the Protestants who changed the way man thought about himself and about his God. It was the Protestants who proposed that individuals are predetermined to be saved or not, independent of anything that they could actually do or not do, dispense with prayer, fasting, and sacrifice, dispense with penance, and forget the body of Christ, obligations to your community, You know, John Calvin was really a piece of work. He was somewhat of an emotional basket case, obsessed late into the night about his own personal salvation. He just couldn't work it out, and he couldn't imagine not being saved. He had to invent an entire philosophy which would enable his own personal salvation. His predestination philosophy would say, or theology would say that God pre-chose to save him entirely a decision made by God, and he had nothing to do with it, and 
it's totally just that God creates people to damn them and creates others to save them. And isn't it nice to be part of the elect? Isn't it nice that I'm one of the chosen ones? I like being one of the chosen ones. I like being special. That's how he could put to bed his crushing and insatiable anxiety. So at the heart of the Calvinist error, just to, just to point to one error, is a man with a psychological problem. Beyond scrupulosity, beyond having scruples, right? This is a man who was so consumed with the idea of his own salvation, he could have channeled that energy into something productive like being a fantastic Catholic and becoming a saint. But instead, he channeled that energy into inventing an entirely new theology which would orient all of creation and all of theology towards you, the ego, the individual. His ego could not rest in the truth. His heart was restless. And unlike St. Augustine's, it was restless for the rest of his life. And my hunch is it's still pretty restless based on where he very likely is right now as a result of all the damage and harm that he caused. But one of the results of his philosophy was absolutism. And Hilaire Belloc talks about this quite a bit. Pretty good historian, Hilaire Belloc. He traces the history of absolutism to Calvinism. In other words, if I have to say that I am absolutely certain that I am either saved or damned, I am elect and pre-chosen or forever cast to hell no matter what I do on earth, that is individualist absolutism. And it is out of that absolutism that we have the all the bad examples of absolutist monarchy. You know, when people who like to knock on monarchy as a, as a form of government, they always point to, well, what about the absolute kings, the absolute princes, the ones who had absolute power over everything? Well, yeah, absolutism in terms of political power is a Protestant invention. Absolutism in political power is part of the reason why Enlightenment philosophy had to be come into being. If you suffered under an absolute monarch, under a, a true tyrant, not just, well, all monarchies are tyrants, right? That's what they say. But an actual tyrant, someone who's very, who's, who was not bound by law or custom or religion or church, but who's just random whims dictated all aspects of your life. If you lived under the yoke of that type of government, I could I, I can sympathize with the idea of like, hey, what if we just had no government or a very limited one? What is the whole purpose of government anyway, right? You start to ask those questions. So this is just one example of how Protestantism created an error and that error flowed through to history and is responsible for 
liberal ideology. I say liberal with a big L as in classical liberal, and I make no distinction between classical liberalism and progressivism because they're both ultimately the same thing.